Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening. I hope and trust that you are all well. I would like to thank Aura for being the sponsor of today's video. Have you ever Googled yourself and were shocked to see your personal information exposed on one of those public listing sites? Are you tired of constantly receiving spam phone calls to the point where you don't even answer your phone anymore? That's where Aura can step in and help you. Data brokers are making a fortune selling your information to robocallers, spammers, and others who want to learn more about you, like where you live. Aura can identify data brokers exposing your information and submit opt-out requests on your behalf. Brokers are legally required to remove your info if you ask them, but they may make it super hard to do so. Let Aura handle it for you. Aura also does so much more to protect you and your family from online threats you can't see. It's really easy to set up so you don't have to download several different apps to get things like parental controls, antivirus, VPN, password management, identity theft insurance, and more. You get everything at one affordable price. Let Aura do the hard work of keeping you safe online so you can focus on other tasks with peace of mind. You can either let people continue to exploit and profit off your private information, or you can go to Aura.com slash Phoenix to start your two-week free trial, also linked below in the description. I have been using Aura for the past month. It shocked me what I found on the internet. I quickly learned that my information was being sold on the dark web. Pretty scary, considering someone is making money off my information. Now, with the help of Aura, I am protected on my computer, my cell phone, and any other gadgets that I need protection with. Aura can also hide your IP address using a VPN. Aura also provides you the option to lock your credit bureau, such as Experian. That way, if someone is running your credit without your knowledge, they cannot see any of the information thanks to the protection of Aura. So, stop data brokers from exposing your information. Go to my link, Aura.com forward slash Phoenix, to get a 14-day free trial to see if your personal information has been compromised. Don't wait any longer. Go ahead and sign up for Aura's 14-day free trial using my link in the description below and start protecting yourself today. I'd like to give a very special shout out to the reform members of Back to Ashes, Tavia S., Chrissy Ellis, Tina Mead, Cindy Cleveland, Patty's Needs, Samantha Place, and her scare wifey. 
and the rest of the Back to Ashes membership family is right here on your screen. Remember, if you'd like to become a Back to Ashes member or would like to buy me a coffee, which would be appreciated, all of that can be found in the description below. With all of that being said, it is time to go back to ashes, for when we arise from the ashes, we are a bigger, brighter, stronger, and happier person in the morning. Sit back, relax, kick back, grab a snack, or tuck in and get warm, and prepare for this dose of vocal melatonin entitled True Unsolved Mystery Cases, Volume 7. Right after this intro and ad will play, I'll read the first case and ad will play, and after that, there will be no more ads within this video. One-year-old Vanessa Morales has been missing ever since her mother was killed in Connecticut in 2019. Her father, accused in the murder, will be headed to trial in the fall. On December 2, 2019, police in Anasonia, Connecticut, conducted a welfare check on Christine Holloway because she didn't show up for work. Police knocked on the door but didn't get an answer. Hours later, they returned and found her dead, which they determined was caused by blunt force trauma. There was no sign of her daughter, Vanessa. Surveillance footage put Vanessa's father, Jose Morales, in the home, and police had enough evidence to charge him in the murder, according to court documents. According to his arrest affidavit, Morales told police he had nothing to do with Holloway's death or his daughter's disappearance and has not been charged with the disappearance. Girls resembling Vanessa were spotted in Bridgeport, Connecticut in January 2020 and in San Diego, California in January 2021. Neither turned out to be the missing child. The FBI has offered a reward of $10,000 for information leading to Vanessa's recovery, but no longer seems to be doing so. What is your Chiron Horman theory? For context, I commented on another sub a while ago that I had believed the stepmom and her friend did it. I got so much backlash I had to go refresh myself on the case, but I'm still unsure. I'm interested to see what others' theories are. Here's a quick description of the case for those who don't remember. On January 4, 2010, Kyron was taken to Skyline Elementary School by his stepmother, Terry Horman, who then stayed with him while he attended a science fair. Terry Horman stated that she left the school at around 8.45 a.m., and that she last remembered seeing Kyron walking down the hall to his first class. However, Kyron was never seen in his first class and was instead marked as absent that day. Terry's statements to the police indicate that, while leaving the school at 8.45 a.m., she ran errands at two different Fred Meyer grocery stores until about 10.10 a.m. Between then and 11.39 a.m., she stated that she was driving her daughter around town in an attempt to use the motion of the vehicle to soothe the toddler's earache. Terry said that she then went to the local gym and exercised until about 12.40 p.m. By 1.21 p.m., she had arrived home and posted photos of Kyron at the state fair on Facebook. At 3.30 p.m., Terry and her husband, Kane, walked with their daughter, Kiera, to the bus stop to meet Kyron. 
The bus driver told them that the boy had not boarded the bus and to call the school to ask his whereabouts. Terry did so, only to be informed by the school secretary that, as far as anyone there knew, Chiron had not been at school since early that day and that he had accordingly been marked absent. Realizing that the boy was missing, the secretary called 911. Search efforts for Chiron were extensive and primarily focused on a two-mile radius around Skyline Elementary and on Asavi Island, approximately six miles away. Law enforcement did not disclose their reasons for searching the area, where they did, which included a search of the Savi Island Bridge. On June 12th, around 300 trained rescuers were on the ground searching wooded areas near the school. The search for Chiron, which spanned 10 days, was the largest in Oregon history and included over 1,300 searchers from Oregon, Washington, and California. A reward posted for information leading to the discover of Chiron, which was initially $25,000, expanded to $50,000 in late July 2010. Additional information. While investigating Chiron's disappearance, police discovered Terry allegedly tried to hire a landscaper to kill her husband. Karen's father, several months before Kyron vanished. When police told Kane about the story, he left his home with their infant daughter and filed for divorce. Quote, when the police started questioning us, they took into account more what Kane and Desiree were saying as opposed to what I was saying, and I spent my days with him, end quote, Terry said. When Terry spoke privately with police, they told her she failed two polygraph tests. Although a judge and a lawyer for Terry have called her a suspect in court papers, she has never officially been named a suspect or person of interest by police. Lastly, the Multnomah County Sheriff's Office did not agree to an interview with News Nation, but ahead of the 13-year anniversary of Karen's disappearance, they issued a statement. Quote, Kyron's disappearance continues to have a profound impact on our community. The case remains open and active. Investigators are using advances in software, digital forensics, and geospatial technology to support and advance their work. End quote. The statement read. In September 1979, 34-year-old mother of three, Mimi Haddad, was found decapitated on the front lawn of her Allen Park, Michigan home. Sadly, with few clues and a lack of suspects, no arrests were ever made and Mimi's case remains unsolved. On the morning of September 21, 1979, 11-year-old Audrey Haddad along with her siblings, 8-year-old Edward and 7-year-old Evelyn, readied themselves for school. As the trio exited through the front door of their well-kept ranch-style Allen Park, Michigan home to catch the school bus, they made a devastating discovery. Their mother, 34-year-old Mimi Haddad, lay dead on the front lawn. She had been decapitated. Audrey re-entered the family's home and phoned police. Meanwhile, the screams of her siblings outside had caught the attention of nearby neighbors. 
While one rushed the children away from the horrific scene, others flooded the local police department with frantic calls. Mimi was found in the front yard of her suburban home. Nearby, investigators discovered several pieces of jewelry belonging to the mom of three. She was fully clothed, had no defensive wounds or injuries on her body, and showed no signs of sexual assault. An autopsy placed her time of death approximately eight hours prior. It was determined Mimi's head had been severed by a single, sharp, clean blow from a bladed weapon. Her head was found to be missing from the scene. Mimi and her husband, Kalaf Haddad, had emigrated from Jordan to the United States in 1967 and in 1972 became U.S. citizens. The pair purchased the home in Allen Park and had three children together. However, just over a year prior to her murder, Mimi and Kalaf divorced. While Mimi, who worked as a hairdresser, remained in the home with the children, Kalaf moved into an apartment in nearby Detroit. Kalaf was quickly dismissed as a suspect after the police confirmed he had been working the night shift on the evening of Mimi's murder. On the evening of the death, it was learned Mimi had gone on a date with an unnamed man. The pair had gone to the movies in a tavern before then heading to a local disco. The man was questioned by police. However, according to them, he was not believed to be a suspect. Only two days after Mimi's murder, a severed head was discovered floating in the Hudson River in Jersey City, New Jersey, by a fisherman in search of crabs. Having suffered no tissue damage from fish or other wildlife, it was estimated the head had been in the water for less than 72 hours. Unfortunately, after dental comparisons were completed, it was determined the head did not belong to Mimi. On September 24th, police received a bizarre tip in the form of an anonymous postcard. The note read in part, quote, You may find that the reason the head is missing is it is proof to another she is now dead. End quote. Investigators would not comment further about the letter's contents. As leads began to dwindle, Detective William Reardon, who was heading the investigation, presented a new theory. Mimi had been the victim of an honor killing. Wiki excerpt. Honor killing is most often the murder of a woman or a girl by one or more male family members. The killers justify their actions by claiming that the victim has brought dishonor upon their family in some way. Some example reasons include adultery, divorce, interfaith relationships, etc. Referencing the couple's divorce, he quoted a book titled The Arab Mind as saying, quote, The traditional remedy for a woman's dishonor is to cut off the offending limb, end quote. The speculation brought about a protest from members of the Arab Community Center of Economic and Social Services in nearby Dearborn, Michigan. Their vice president, Don Yunus, was quoted as saying, quote, To say this as an expression of Arabic culture is unfair. It's no more typical of Arab culture than the American woman killing her three children this weekend, being typical of American culture, end quote. Friends and relatives of Mimi's agreed the theory was outlandish. 
telling investigators that both Mimi and her ex-husband had come to the U.S. seeking religious freedom and were, in fact, Orthodox Christians. Mimi was laid to rest in Wayne County Cemetery, though I am unsure of which one specifically. Sadly, authorities were unable to recover her missing head. No arrests were ever made, and Mimi's case remained unsolved. Nineteen eighty seven Murder of Joyce Casper solved with forensic genetic genealogy. In nineteen eighty seven, Joyce Casper was abducted outside of her place of business in Boise, Idaho. She was found sexually assaulted and murdered a short time later. In twenty twenty, Boise Police Department turned to Identifiers International to perform a forensic genetic genealogy investigation. Below is our press release. Identifiers International LLC in conjunction with the Boise Police Department is pleased to announce the identification of Frank A. Rodriguez as the assailant in the 1987 murder of prominent businesswoman and much-loved Boise resident Joyce Casper. On October 13, 1987, Casper was found murdered in her car outside of her Vista Hallmark shop near Vista Village Shopping Center. At the time, detectives looked into a report that Joyce made two to three weeks before the murder, involving a male assailant who had attempted to assault her at her business. She described to officers that the suspect was likely between the ages of 17 and 25, with slick-back black hair. A suspect could not be identified at that time. After reopening the case in 2017, Boise police detectives found evidence had been preserved that was not useful in 1987. Boise police brought in a company that used advanced DNA technology to create a profile of the suspect. Based on that analysis, Boise police investigators worked through hundreds of leads and potential suspects. Quote, Although no suspects were generated from this search, detectives from BPD's Violent Crimes Unit and Special Victims Unit continued to work diligently to solve the case and bring the Casper family answers, end quote, said Boise Police Captain Matt Jones. Quote, We appreciate the work of our many partners throughout this case, including Identifiers International, who helped us narrow down the suspect list to a single-family tree. End quote. In 2020, Identifiers International was called in to apply forensic genetic genealogy to the case. Based on lead supplies by Identifinders, Boise police detectives and detectives from all over the country conducted interviews which led to the right branch of the suspect's family. With the assistance of Identifinders, the Boise Police Department approached the suspect's immediate family with a request for DNA samples to confirm Frank A. Rodriguez as the suspect. Quote, We realized immediately that the case would be challenging because Hispanics are not well represented in the genetic genealogy databases, end quote, stated Dr. Colin Fitzpatrick, president of the Identifinders International. Quote, But our persistence paid off. 
Lisa Lewis did a great job helping Boise police identify Mr. Rodriguez, end quote. Rodriguez was born in Hartford, Connecticut, and moved as a teenager with his family to Boise in the mid-1980s. His profile was not found in any law enforcement database. Without forensic genetic genealogy, the case would likely have never been solved. Identifinders would like to express their appreciation to the Boise Police Department for trusting us with this case and helping to bring closure to the Casper family. Charles Chuck Morgan, Bizarre Unsolved Murder or Elaborate Suicide Charles Chuck Morgan was a 39-year-old escrow agent residing in Tucson, Arizona, with his wife Ruth and their four daughters. Very little is known about Chuck's life prior to his disappearance and death, but he appears to have lived a very unassuming life. The First Disappearance on the 22nd of March, 1977, Chuck dropped his daughters off at school and headed to work. His daughters are reported as being the last ones to see him that day, so it can only be assumed that he never made it to work. His absence was noted when he failed to return home at the end of the day, although, again, it is unclear if he was officially reported missing to the police at this time. Three days later, on March 25th, Ruth was suddenly awoken at 2 a.m. by the dog barking. She got out of bed and opened the front door to find Chuck standing there. Ruth described him as looking disheveled with plastic handcuffs hanging from each wrist and an additional set hanging from his ankle. He was also missing a shoe. Chuck wasn't speaking and motioned to his throat. Ruth asked if he could speak, to which Charles shook his head. She asked if he could write, and after Charles nodded, Ruth grabbed a pen and some paper. Charles wrote that his throat had been painted with a hallucinogenic drug, which could drive him insane, destroy his nervous system, or kill him. Chuck told Ruth that he had been near Sky Harbor Airport in Phoenix, where he had been tortured. Ruth wanted to call the police and get medical help, but Chuck refused saying they would be putting the family in danger. Ruth ultimately agreed and nursed Chuck back to health herself. He communicated with her via notes and began to hint that he had a secret identity as an agent of the federal government. In one note, he wrote, quote, They took my treasury identification, end quote, and stated he had been working for them for around two to three years. Ruth stated this was the first time she'd heard any mention of the Treasury Department or Chuck working for them. As Chuck regained his voice, he became increasingly paranoid. He began wearing a bulletproof vest and carried a gun at all times. He refused to let his daughters go outside alone and ensured they were driven to and picked up from school each day. Chuck told his father that should anything happen to him, he would leave behind a letter explaining everything, including who was responsible. The Second Disappearance Two months later, on June 7, 1977, Chuck would go missing yet again. On the morning of his disappearance, Ruth took the children to school whilst Chuck headed to work. In the late afternoon, 
Chuck called his office from a downtown payphone, indicating he would be arriving in around 30 minutes. However, he never showed up. Chuck was ultimately reported missing. Nine days later, on June 14th, Ruth received a phone call from an unidentified woman who only referred herself as Green Eyes. The woman asked for Ruthie, and when Ruth responded affirmatively, the woman said, quote, Chuck is all right. Ecclesiastes 12, 1 through 8, end quote. After saying this, the woman hung up. This refers to a Bible passage which in part reads, quote, Men are afraid of a high place and of terrors on the road. Remember him before the silver cord is broken and the golden bowl is crushed. Then the dust will return to the earth as it was, and the spirit will return to God who gave it. End quote. Two days following this call, on June 18th, Chuck's body was discovered on a dirt road 40 miles west of Tucson. Chuck had been shot in the back of the head and was found lying on the ground next to his Mercury Cougar, with his gun located beside him. Items found on and around Chuck's body were unusual. He was still wearing his bulletproof vest that he had insisted on using since his first disappearance. He was also wearing his holster along with belt, which had a concealed knife in the buckle. A $2 bill with a map drawn on the back was found pinned to Chuck's underwear. The front of the bill contained seven Spanish surnames with the words Ecclesiastes 12 written above. Arrows pointed to the numbers 1 and 8 within the bill's serial code. The map led to the town's Rombles Junction in Salas City, an area between Tucson and Mexico. In Chuck's vehicle, a pair of sunglasses were located that were identified as not belonging to him. Also within the vehicle were several weapons, ammunition, and handcuffs. The vehicle had reportedly been altered in some way so that it could be unlocked from the fender. For English folks, this is the part of the car that frames the wheel well. There doesn't appear to be any more information on this. So, if any car enthusiasts out there can explain this, please jump in. Also, within the vehicle was a note containing handwritten directions to the site of where Chuck's body was found. The handwriting was later confirmed to be his. On the rear back seat of the vehicle, a folded white handkerchief was found. When unwrapped, it was discovered to contain one of Chuck's teeth. Investigation it was quickly determined that Chuck had been shot in the back of the head at close range with his own 357 caliber Magnum. The gun was completely devoid of any fingerprints, as was the rest of the scene. The medical examination concluded that Chuck had only been dead for approximately 12 hours before being found, which led to the question of where he had been between going missing on June 7th and his body being recovered on June 16th. Gunpowder residue was found on Chuck's hand. This discovery, along with the shot being fired from his own weapon, led investigators to conclude that Chuck died from a self-inflicted gunshot, and his death was ruled a suicide. Both his wife Ruth and journalist Don Devereaux doubted this ruling, with Don stating, quote, 
I've never seen in all my years as a journalist a fellow take himself out into the desert wearing a bulletproof vest and shoot himself in the back of the head, end quote. Two days following Chuck's discovery, a woman called the Pima County Sheriff's Department. She called herself Green Eyes and confirmed she was the same person that had called Ruth a few days prior. Green Eyes had said Chuck had come to meet her at a local motel shortly before he died. He had showed her a briefcase containing thousands of dollars in cash and told her that the money would buy him out of a contract the mob had put on him. Chuck disclosed that there was a $90,000 contract on his life, which was increasing by $5,000 a day. Police were able to corroborate some of Green Eyes' story, finding CCTV that showed Chuck meeting an unidentified woman. It was determined that Chuck had registered at a Southside hotel and met this woman several times. The possibility of an extramarital affair was floated. However... Ruth adamantly denied this, stating Chuck was extremely loyal to her. It is not clear if Green Eyes was ever identified, but if so, her name has never been released publicly. Despite this further information from Green Eyes, the case was closed on the 10th of August, 1977, with the official ruling as suicide. Prama County Sheriff's Department official stated, quote, we have found no evidence that anyone took part in the death but himself, end quote. Potential Mob Ties At the time of Chuck's death, Arizona was the only state that allowed blind trust ownership of real estate. This meant that individuals could buy property anonymously with only an escrow agent, like Chuck, knowing their identity. At the time of his death, Chuck was known to be doing escrow work for two alleged organized crime groups, the Ned Warren family and the Joe Bonanno family. In the 1970s, organized crime groups had established Arizona as a pipeline for narcotics and money laundering. The above blind ownership law allowed them to purchase land and properties in which they could launder money through, knowing that it couldn't be traced. Don Devereaux had investigated Chuck's death following the case airing on Unsolved Mysteries. He learned that Chuck was involved in money laundering activities through his escrow company and involved in large gold and platinum transactions, which was a more convenient way to launder money. He also discovered that Chuck kept duplicate records of these illicit transactions. Don stated, quote, he was around the edges of a couple of very large organized crime groups in Arizona at that time. It was very easy to get in over your head, and I suspect that over the years. Mr. Morgan was in that kind of situation. He was doing perhaps upwards of a billion dollars of escrow work in bullion and platinum. These were transactions that likely only existed on paper. He was a straight businessman that probably got a little too close to the flame, end quote. Following his death, his attorney, Ronald J. Newman, confirmed that Chuck was a secret witness in an extensive land fraud investigation and has testified around the internal dealings at Banco International de Arizona. It is alleged that his testimony was recorded in May 1977, around a month before his death. 
Two weeks following Chuck's death, two men claiming to be FBI turned up at the address of Ruth Morgan, claiming they needed to search the property. Ruth stated they ransacked the house, appearing to be looking for something specifically, but did not appear to find it. Don later sent an FOI request to the FBI, an attempt to identify these officers. However, the FBI claimed to have no knowledge of Chuck Morgan. The Deaths of Doug Johnson and Danny Casalero Three months following the broadcast of the Unsolved Mysteries episode, and after Don Devereaux began investigating Chuck's death, a male by the name of Doug Johnston was found shot to death in his car outside of his Phoenix office. Doug was shot in the left side of his head and no gun was ever found. Doug worked and was found dead across the street from Don's office, and the two drove almost identical vehicles. Don strongly believes that Doug was killed in a case of mistaken identity and that he himself was the intended target. A year following Doug's death, Don was contacted by Danny Casalero, a writer from D.C. Danny stated he had information to share with Don about Chuck's illegal gold transactions. However, before they could meet Danny, they found Danny dead in a hotel bathtub with both his wrists slashed. His death was ruled a homicide. Theories and Final Thoughts there are several theories relating to Chuck's death, the main two being that either he did in fact take his own life after suffering mental health problems and delusions, or that he was in fact involved with the mafia and working for the government, and a hitman ultimately took him out. Don believes the latter, stating, quote, There is a great likelihood that Mr. Morgan was, in fact, doing something with the government. I think this was a guy who was extremely naive about a lot of things. I think somebody blew his cover and he got killed. End quote. Chuck's wife and daughters have never accepted that he took his own life, and Ruth continued to believe that he was murdered until her death in 2016. Almost 50 years have passed since Chuck's death, and despite its official ruling of suicide, it remains a bizarre and mysterious as it was in 1977. This story contains names that are Swedish, so please forgive me if I mispronounce anything as I do not speak Swedish myself. What Happened to Annie Borgesson? On the morning of Sunday, December 4, 2005, Annie Christina Borgesson's body was found face down on the shore of Prestwick Beach, Scotland. The 30-year-old Swedish woman's body was discovered by a dog walker, with her belongings scattered around her. Police deemed the most likely cause of death to be suicide, but her family and friends were not convinced. Quote, she was independent. She was strong with her long, thick blonde hair. She was like a Viking princess. She was a great friend, end quote, says Maria Jansen, Annie's best friend. The pair met in Sweden, where Maria lives today. Annie could speak six languages, was a talented singer, and deeply loved by her family. Her friends describe her as chatty and lively, traits which came in handy when she moved to Edinburgh. Scotland in autumn of 2004, 
After arriving, Annie enrolled in English classes and began working for a tourist hotspot in February 2005, where she became friends with Kat Dalmo. Quote, I remember Annie was a very happy, lively girl. She enjoyed music and dancing, end quote, says Kat. Kat and Annie worked together until Annie's contract ended, but she would still drop by to see her old colleagues. When Annie stopped by on Friday the 2nd of December, Kat would be one of the last people to see her alive. Friends that heard from Annie in the days leading up to her death reject the idea that she took her own life. When Annie visited Kat on Friday the 2nd of December, Annie excused herself to make a call. Kat says of the visit that Annie, quote, was in a good mood. She didn't seem depressed at all. It doesn't add up, end quote. Maria shares this view, saying that, quote, Annie was going to come home to Sweden to visit me and stay at my house for a couple of days, and that she had great plans, end quote. On Saturday the 3rd of December, CCTV at Prestwick Airport picked up footage of Annie entering the terminal at 3.14 p.m. In the footage, she spends around five minutes in the airport, then leaves. It's unclear why she left the airport, but the next confirmed sighting of Annie would be when her body was found face up on Prestwick Beach, 1.2 miles away. Quote, my son was preparing his room for her, then this terrible phone call came. I thought it was Annie, and I was so happy running to the phone. I heard my sister's voice, and I was shocked to hear that Annie had been found dead, end quote, Maria says. Police suspected Annie's death to be a suicide, with a postmortem being carried out three days after the body was found. It stated that there were no evidence of trauma to Annie's body. The detective on duty the morning Annie's body was found, Michael Neal, said, quote, There was never anything at all in the whole investigation to indicate that there was any criminality involved in Annie's death, end quote. However, an undertaker in London who handled the transport of Annie's body and an undertaker in Sweden who received it when it got home both noted some peculiarities that weren't in the initial post-mortem in Scotland. They described what they thought was bruising on Annie's body. Swedish undertaker Gunn Dainberg said that in her near 38-year-long career, she had, quote, never experienced anything like this before. You don't forget. When we opened the coffin, I still remember seeing finger marks around her neck. Two marks. I remember them so clearly. End quote. Annie's friends and family grew suspicious. They requested pictures from Annie's initial postmortem, which were denied. Police explained that there was not strong enough public interest in the photos and that they would be distressing for the family to see. Police requested call records from Annie's mobile provider, which stated that her phone hadn't been used for the four days leading up to her death despite Kat saying she saw Annie take a call during that time. While police cited that the most likely cause of Annie's death was suicide, her family and friends weren't convinced. And Maria can't shake the feeling that, quote, something very terrible had happened to Annie. Annie was murdered, end quote.
84-year-old William Davis was known to fear strangers. He kept his home locked tight, carried a firearm, and even set homemade booby traps around his property. Sadly, his worst fears came to fruition when, in 1989, an unknown intruder strangled him inside of his rural deputy, Indiana home. On the afternoon of November 3, 1989, Deputy Indiana resident Leonard Strode discovered Buck, his neighbor's pet bull, had escaped his enclosure. Leonard made his way down the narrow gravel lane leading to the home of Buck's owner, 84-year-old William Davis, to inform him of the situation. Initially, all seemed as usual at the quiet farm. William's cows stood grazing on the property's grassy hilltops, and a couple of old dogs laid lazily in the front yard. As Leonard neared William's weathered home, however, he noticed something unusual. The front door was standing, partially ajar. After calling out and receiving no response, Leonard pushed the door the rest of the way open. Only feet away, he found William lying lifeless on the floor. A length of twine tightly wrapped around his neck. Leonard quickly summoned for help. William was found lying on his living room floor near the home's wood-burning stove. He was fully dressed in his day clothes. A large wound believed caused by a fireplace poker was found above William's eye, and a length of balling twine was found wrapped four times around his neck. William's cause of death was determined to be asphyxiation by strangulation. Although William's murder was initially thought to be the result of a burglary gone wrong, police found no signs of forced entrance, and nothing appeared to be missing from the home. William's attacker had broken the glass out of the curio cabinet that held antiques, however, had left the items inside undisturbed. Police also discovered $40 in cash in William's wallet, which sat untouched on a chair nearby. William had lived in the secluded house off of Base Road for nearly 60 years. In 1929, he married a woman named Opal, and the pair had had five daughters, all of which were raised in the home. They eventually divorced and Opal moved to Illinois. William, however, maintained a very close relationship with his children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren. Opal remarried in 1974. She passed away 10 years later in 1984. For the last 15 years of his life, William lived alone. However, his family paid him regular visits. Although in his 80s, William was very independent and an active man who was in good health and described as feisty by his family. As he had progressed in age, William had opted to sell some of his farmland to tobacco and corn sharecroppers. However, he still tended to a small cattle farm, chopped wood, and cared for his home and pets on his own. William was known as a kind and gentle man with no known enemies. His most beloved possession, a cat named Hootie, was found carrying between a freezer and the home after his murder. While holding the distraught feline on her lap, William's daughter told reporters her father, quote, lived for this cat, end quote. She also added, quote, if only she could talk, end quote. William was also known as a rather paranoid person. 
despite his town having less than 100 residents. Family, friends, and neighbors relayed the information that William had often spoken of his fear of becoming a victim of a burglar. They added, he kept his doors and windows locked at all times and would never open up for an unscheduled visitor. Even his children made sure to phone him before stopping by. He carried a pistol at all times, even keeping it nearby when he slept. William was also known to set booby traps around his house and property to keep potentially dangerous strangers at bay. The last known person to speak to William was his neighbor, Leonard. According to him, he had spoken to William by phone at 5 p.m. on November the 2nd, accompanied by the knowledge that William was known to go to bed rather early, but was found still dressed in his day clothes. The coroner estimated the attack on William had occurred in the early evening on the 2nd. Aside from being a farmer, active members of his church and the local conservation club, William was also a member of the Mason's Lodge. Prior to burial, he was giving a Masonic funeral. William was laid to rest on November 7th in Jennings County's Vernon Cemetery. Sadly, with few clues, no known motive, and no suspects, William's case quickly went cold and unfortunately has remained that way ever since. Where Have All the Children Gone? A compilation of young people missing from group homes and troubled teen industry establishments. Remember yourself at 13, the haircut you hope no one remembers, the fashion choices that made you cringe, the moments in time that make you roll your eyes now that you're grown. Imagine being frozen that way forever, a school photo plastered on a website with your name and date of birth, forever 13. This is the fate of countless children, particularly those who are care-experienced or institutionalized. I am not here to discuss the deaths, nor the mass abuse of children, but instead, those that are missing. Children put into institutions who never made it home. Children who've slipped through the cracks. Children forever 13. 1970s January 1st, 1971 Janet Kramer was 13 when she went missing from a girls' group home in Wilmar, Minnesota, on the 1st of January, 1971. Janet wore glasses and had previously broken her right arm at the elbow. February 3, 1973. Sentenced to Sinanon by court order, Rose Lena Cole was 16 when her last known contact occurred. A postscript to a letter written the previous year, noting that she'd finally found a stamp. Rose wasn't actually at Sinanon when she went missing, having run away and written to her family, telling them she couldn't write again until she turned 18, lest Sinanon find her, capture her, and force her back against her will. Rose has never been heard from since, and it is still classed as a runaway. April 7, 1975 12-year-old David Williams and 17-year-old Stephen Anderson were roommates at the new Lisbon State School when they went missing in April 1975. 
The two boys were both diagnosed with developmental disabilities and required supervision when caring for themselves, with David also requiring daily medication for seizures. The two boys were last seen walking towards the school from a field where they had been playing with staff members. June 8, 1976, Sherry Elizabeth Roach was 17 when she left the group home in Halfway House, Pedrigal House, to get on a bus and go to work and was never seen again. Although Sherry had a history of running away, she always contacted her brother to let him know she was safe. Her brother and mother haven't heard from Sherry since she went missing, and authorities have looked into the possibility that she was a victim of a serial killer. November 30, 1976 Unlike many, Rafael Escobar Jr. was resident of St. Michael's Home for Children by Choice at 18. He was supposed to have left, but due to his poor mental health and lack of certainty about what was coming left, Rafael remained. He had been a resident of the home since he was 13, when his mother abandoned the family, but he kept in contact with his siblings and was due to move in with his sister at some point in the near future. In 1976, there were reports of drug abuse, alcohol abuse, physical abuse, and sexual abuse at St. Michael's Home for Children, which eventually closed in 1978. Raphael has nine surviving siblings hoping for answers as to what happened to their brother. 1980s August 31, 1981 Patricia Lynn Taylor was 15 when she went missing. Born in California, she'd gone to some point to North Dakota to live with relatives. At some point afterwards, she was taken to Oklahoma and put into the care of Oklahoma's Department of Human Services. First placed in the Oklahoma Baptist Home for Children, she was moved to the Tulsa Girls Group Home in July 1981. She went missing on the 31st of August that year and was classified as a runaway. Patricia's family continued to look for her. March 23, 1984 William Charles Cordes was a troubled youth who had spent time in Juvenile Hall, an Oak Ridge house group home before being sent to the Children's Home Society in Auburn, California, as punishment for stealing beer. He and two other boys escaped the group home to go to a party, after which 15-year-old William has never been seen again. Although he was initially reported as missing, the report was swiftly canceled and no investigation was made into his disappearance until years later. October 4, 1984, Chipley Charles Sanders and James Eric Bess, age 13 and 14 respectively, were friends who both lived at a group home on the 1300 block of 13th Street in Ashland, Kentucky, in 1984. They ran away together and have never been seen since. Chipley and a sibling had been adopted back in 1980, but he ended up in the group home in 1983. June 21, 1985. At 17, Cynthia Lorraine Perry, also known as Lori, entered a group home in Raleigh, North Carolina, to try and help her with her drug addiction. She had been in and out of the family home since she was 14 due to poor relations with her stepfather. On the day she disappeared, Cynthia called her mother to ask permission to go to a party, which her mother denied. 
They argued, and Cynthia threatened to run away. A quarter of an hour later, staff at the home called Cynthia's mother to tell her that Cynthia had left the home, taking no belongings with her. Two weeks later, Cynthia phoned her mother to tell her that she was okay and sober, but wouldn't be returning until she turned 18. Cynthia has never been heard from again. 1990s January 16, 1993, John Christopher Inman was a 17-year-old student at Sea-Doo Running Springs when he went missing on January 16, 1993. John wasn't the healthiest. He needed meds to prevent seizures. He had a shunt in his skull, crowns on his teeth, and needed glasses, and didn't have his seizure medication on him when he seemingly ran away. June 26, 1994 A year and a half after John, Blake Wade Pursley went missing from the very same Sea-Doo campus. Blake wasn't too healthy either. He'd been in an accident as a toddler that left him with a paralyzed vocal cord, a life-threatening internal fungus, poor motor skills, and seizures, and he too required daily medication for said seizures. Blake had only been at Sea-Doo since June 1st, and the circumstances of his disappearance are unclear. The school and authorities believed he'd voluntarily ran away, while his family believed he was lured away or abducted. There have been sightings of Blake, but he has not been confirmedly seen since June 26, 1994, when he was 14 years old. 2000s February 8, 2004, another decade on, and another young man disappeared from Sea-Doo High School. 16-year-old Daniel Ted Ewan. He was at Sea-Doo for only 10 days before running, having been initially sent there following the recommendation of a psychiatrist following a bout of depression. On the Lost Kids podcast, Daniel's parents have stated they believe he is still alive, Indeed, there have been recent alleged sightings of Daniel with a woman and a baby. February 15, 2004 13-year-old Justin Philip Harris has few confirmed details about him online. Everything seems to be contradictory. His father states he had no disabilities, while the staff at the R.L. Mills home stated he required constant supervision and was unable to function without psychiatric medication. The R.L. Mills home closed in 2011, was a home for adolescent boys with emotional and behavioral problems, and it's from there that Justin vanished. Seemingly, he packed his bed with clothes to make it look like he was asleep in it and then ran away during the night. That said, his father believes that Justin was a victim of a crime and that the R.L. Mills home had covered it up. Justin has never been found. 2010s December 4, 2010, Forrest Ferguson had attended Diamond Ranch Academy before he ended up at Carlbrook School, a CDU spinoff which closed in 2015 and is discussed in depth in Stolen, a memoir by Elizabeth Gilpin. Forrest left campus at 7.30 p.m. with some additional clothing, and he has not been seen since. Forrest's loved ones run a website dedicated to finding Forrest and bringing him home. 
April 30, 2012, Keisha Marie Felix, known as Red, was 16 when she was disappeared from Mason de Mer, a group home for teenagers who were pregnant or had young children. Kiosha's mother was in prison, and so Kiosha was the ward of Louisiana Department of Children and Family Services. Given a weekend pass to visit her aunt, Kiosha was last seen leaving her aunt's home on April 30th. She was initially labeled a runaway, as she had once run away before, but only for two days. And her cousin claimed to hear from her soon after she vanished. But in July 2012, her aunt's boyfriend, Leon Wilkerson Jr., was charged with sexual assault and second-degree kidnapping in regards to Kiosha's case. Her aunt was charged with improper supervision of a minor and accessory to sexual assault, and the cousin who claimed to have heard from her was charged with obstruction of justice. Months later, the police officer in charge of the case was suspended and later terminated from the police, and all charges were dropped. After this, CCTV of a person of interest was released. Authorities now believe Kiosha may still be alive but in danger. Her family states that she would never have willingly left her one-year-old daughter behind. May 5, 2013 William Billy Fred Patient III had some problems. He was diagnosed as bipolar. He had substance abuse issues and was swamped by grief over the death of his father in 2012. Billy was enrolled at the Academy, a residential center for troubled teens, to try and treat his substance abuse problems and depression. He and a group of nine other boys went on an outing to Juno Beach, Florida. Billy was last seen floating in the ocean, his clothes and wallet on the sand. Naturally, one may assume the worst, that Billy drowned, either by accident or intentionally. However, his mother believes he was alive for at least several months after his disappearance due to activity on his Facebook page, including messages being read. Billy's parents ended up being refunded by the Academy as they had failed to provide what they had promised them. January 21, 2019 A resident of Spruce Street Inn, a residential program for street youth, chronic runaways, and commercially sexually exploited children, Caitlin Munson went missing on January 21, 2019. Caitlin simply left with a couple of sightings shortly after her disappearance, but none in the years since. Both of Caitlin's parents are dead, and Caitlin has severe developmental disabilities. Fourteen at the time, Caitlin is now 18. February 3, 2019 The youngest on this list, Serenity Dennard, was only nine years old when she ran away from Black Hills Children's Home in February 2019. Serenity's life had been filled with trauma. Removal from her birth parents, over a dozen foster placements, and a diagnosis of reactive attachment disorder. Her adoptive parents placed her in the private facility of a 14-month stay to work on her trauma, and Serenity had been at that home since July 2018. She had already run from the facility before, and so had been on run watch right up until February 3rd. Serenity's disappearance caused concern and outrage 
When it was revealed, the facility took 41 minutes to call 911 following her disappearance. Valuable time just wasted. July 14, 2021 Candace Rose Brooklyn Harris was 16 when she was last seen at Odyssey House of Utah, a residential program for substance abuse. Candace jumped the fence and fled. Four days later, Candace remained active on social media, having not been allowed her phone in the program, but then activity ceased. Candace had previously been trafficked and authorities investigated the possibility she had been trafficked again. She had also run away from Odyssey House on three previous occasions, each time being found and brought back. Candace requires constant medication. Conclusion Although I've listed 21 children missing from group homes and TTI facilities, it's impossible to know the true total number. In fact, many of these young people have been shown little respect, abused, passed from place to place, made to feel unwanted and unloved. In disappearance, many children face the same lack of respect, forgotten, ignored, written off as runaways. I would encourage everyone listening to show them respect here. Don't judge them for the circumstances that led to them being institutionalized or wards of the state. Don't criticize their lives and choices. Simply remember these children forever 13. They deserve to be remembered. The Puzzling Disappearance of Karen Louise Wilson Karen Louise Wilson was born on February 10, 1963, to Taylor and Jenny Wilson. She was a popular student in high school and a cheerleader. She was then a full-time senior political science major at the State University of New York and an unpaid full-time intern for State Assemblyman Samuel Coleman. She aspired to have a career in the Foreign Service. On Wednesday, the 27th of March, 1985, the 22-year-old vanished without a trace. The Timeline On the 27th, Karen went to the Colony Center and bought a red t-shirt and a blue t-shirt to take with her on an upcoming spring break trip to Fort Lauderdale, Florida. She may have also gotten a tan at the tanning hut. She had booked an appointment that day, but no one at the tanning salon could remember seeing her. She was last seen in the 1600 block of Central Avenue in Colony, New York, at approximately 7.20 p.m. She also called her roommate around this time and said she was on her way home for dinner. It was initially believed that Karen got on a bus near the Butcher Block restaurant of Central Avenue and took it to Fuller Avenue, but it was later determined that she couldn't have gotten on the bus and probably walked instead. Three credible witnesses would later tell authorities that they had seen her on Fuller Avenue shortly afterwards. The Last Three Sightings Sighting 1 The first witness told authorities that she saw Karen traveling southbound on Fuller Road after she turned from Central Avenue at 8.15 p.m. She stated that as she approached a gas station on her left, believed to be the working man's friend gas station, she passed a very slow-moving vehicle, also traveling southbound. 
She could not recall any specifics of the vehicle's description, except that the driver was a white male in his 40s with an intent look on his face. The male had a beard, brown hair with a reddish tint, and a long nose and face. The witness then saw a female believed to be Karen walking near a guardrail along the west side of Fuller Road near Cisco Food. By the time the witness reached Fuller Road at Railroad Avenue, she had already driven past the female. Sighting 2 The second witness saw someone they believed to be Karen on the west side of Fuller Road. This was between 8.10 and 8.15 p.m. She stated that the female was walking south of the entrance of Six Mile Waterworks, also known as Rensselaer Lake, near the construction road leading west off Fuller Road. This area is located just north of the I-90 underpass. The female was walking on the grassy portion of the sidewalk with her head down. A smaller person of unknown sex was walking along the female's right side, almost shoulder to shoulder, seemingly urging her up an embankment or incline into the six-mile area. The smaller person was described as between 5'5 and 5'8 and between 120 to 140 pounds. When the female turned her head to the left, the witness thought she appeared nervous. The witness also described a white male following 50 to 100 feet behind the two subjects. He was walking at a steady pace, not seeming to be gaining on the two. He was described as about 5'11 with a slim build, in his early 20s, wearing dark pants and a waist-length jacket which may have been beige. He had light-colored hair, gold to red, and a beard or some other type of facial hair. The couple then returned to the sidewalk and began walking in a normal manner southbound on Fuller Road. After the witness stopped at the red light at the I-90 ramp and then continued southbound, she saw the couple pass the dirt construction road on the right, just out from the I-90 underpass. She also stated that she saw a stopped or disabled small unoccupied black vehicle at Fuller Road at Washington Avenue. The vehicle had a New York license plate bearing partial plate 239 with unknown letters. The car was sedan style and believed to be about five years old. The driver's window was down about six inches, and the passenger side window was down about two inches. She thought this was odd because it looked like it was about to rain. Also noted on the driver's side window was a hole about one-fourth inches in diameter with cracks radiating from it. She thought that it looked like a bullet hole. Sighting 3 The last sighting of Karen was by a third witness at approximately 8.20 p.m. as he left work at the sunny Albany campus and was waiting at traffic light on Washington Avenue and Fuller Road. He was waiting for traffic to clear so that he could turn right, proceed north on Fuller Road, and access the I-90 entrance ramp across from the six-mile entrance. The female was reportedly seen standing on the northwest corner of Fuller Road for about 10 seconds while the witness was waiting for the traffic to clear. He believed that the female appeared to be waiting for the traffic light to change. When he made the right turn onto Fuller Road, the witness saw a male crossing Fuller Road from the west side to the east side, just south of the I-90 underpass. 
He took a few steps up the driveway where the construction trailers were on the east side of Fuller, but seemed to change his mind. He then walked south on the east side of Fuller Road. The male subject did not appear to be looking towards Karen. He was described as a white male with sandy or light brown messy or curly hair with a couple of days growth of facial hair. He was of average height, about 18 to 25 years old, and was wearing a jean or aviator type jacket, jeans, a flannel shirt, and high tan construction boots. As the witness turned right onto the I-90 ramp, he saw a lime green Volkswagen Rabbit, estimated to be a 1981 or 1982, parked along the road. There was no one around the vehicle. This appears to have been the last sighting of her, and she hasn't been heard from since. Due to these witness accounts, authorities believe Karen likely walked south on Fuller Avenue towards State University of New York at Albany. They concluded she was likely abducted somewhere near Six Mile Waterworks, the entrance ramp to Interstate 90 westbound and the North Way. The night was not well lit, and the road was not heavily traveled, making it possible for someone to pull her into a vehicle within a matter of seconds without leaving witnesses. Descriptions and Belongings Karen was a Caucasian female listed at 5'3 and 114 pounds with brown hair and brown eyes. Investigators were unable to locate the personal belongings she had with her when she disappeared. These included a gray cloth notebook, a blue nylon wallet with a Velcro closure, a green and white plastic bag from ups and down, and possibly a blue knapsack containing a yellow dress. She was wearing a cream-colored raincoat, a light blue short-sleeve pullover, faded blue Levi jeans, and white sneakers. She also had a 14-karat gold ring, size 5.5, with a turquoise zircon in raised setting along with a 1-5-carat diamond on each side, a Seiko watch with a black face and gold numerals and white plastic earrings. The ring was approximately 40 to 50 years old. Her dental records are available. Suspects Number 1 a strange man was seen in the area around the time Karen vanished. He has never been identified and authorities have sought him for questioning, at least as a witness or possibly even a suspect. Number two. Authorities announced that another suspect in the case was killed in an accidental house fire in 2013. He was never able to be conclusively linked to the case but it's thought he couldn't be the perpetrator as he had reported to work at 4 a.m., just a few hours after Karen vanished. Number 3. Authorities investigated the possibility that convicted murderer and suspected child serial killer Lewis Lent Jr. may have been involved in Karen's disappearance, but determined it was unlikely since Lent's previous victims were all children. He has not been ruled out. Theories Police did investigate the possibility that Karen traveled to Florida after her disappearance as she had planned but found no evidence that she had ever left New York. Her case has possible links to Suzanne Lyle's abduction. Both were young, dark-haired, sunny students, abducted in the same manner. 
Authorities have investigated a possible link between the two. Both cases are unsolved. The general consensus is that Karen was abducted and murdered. Conclusion During the first year after her disappearance, Karen's family, who now live out of state, mailed thousands of letters pleading for information and advertising their $10,000 reward for new details about her disappearance. They have now given up hope of their daughter coming home alive and simply just want to find her body so they can give her a proper burial and finally know what happened to their little girl. Karen Louise Wilson has been missing for 38 years. If she is still alive, she would be 60 years old. If you have any information about Karen's disappearance, please contact New York State Police at area code 518-783. 3212 After sneaking out of her house in November of 2022, a 14-year-old girl was found dead months later near an abandoned shopping cart in Schenectady, New York's Mohawk River. What happened to Samantha Humphrey? Samantha Humphrey was a well-liked student who attended Schenectady High School. She was close to her grandparents, loved her pets, and enjoyed playing with makeup. Sam had a boyfriend, whose name must be redacted due to the circumstances of this case. According to Sam's friends and family, the boy was alleged to be abusive towards Sam. The young couple ultimately broke up but Sam agreed to meet with him on the evening of Black Friday, November 25th, 2022. Sneaking out of the house at around 11.30 p.m. that night, Sam grabbed her new cell phone, a recent gift from her doting grandparents, and her black puffer coat. It had bright pink, fluffy trim on the hood, perfectly suiting Sam's style. The two would meet at Riverside Park in Schenectady's Stockade neighborhood, a historic setting with homes dating back to the 1600s. Riverside Park is nestled between the backyards of several houses in the Stockdale, with a playground, the nearby Front Street Pool, and plenty of grass to walk along the Mohawk Riverbank. It's a popular location with teens and young adults on summer nights but Sam and her boyfriend were thought to have met up between midnight that wintry evening. What happened next was not as clear. On November 26th, Sam's family contacted the police upon realizing that Sam had gone missing. Although young people often run away from home for a day or two in Schenectady, it quickly became apparent that this wasn't the case with Sam. The most unsettling detail appeared in the form of a viral photo distributed online. During a foot search, Samantha's father found the girl's black and pink coat with what looked like splotches of blood on its fur collar, along the bank of Riverside Park. The image was posted on Facebook, where it quickly circulated amongst certain Capital Region residents. The police were notified of the photo, but nothing came of it. As Schenectady's Riverside Park was not very well lit, investigators turned to security footage to obtain more information. They confirmed that footage showed Sam entering the park that evening, but other reports indicated that said footage was spotty or missing, 
from around the time of Sam's disappearance. As such, Sam was only seen entering the park, but never leaving. At this point, public speculation was at an all-time high from Capital Region internet posters. Several theories swirled as to Sam's whereabouts. Many accused Sam's mother of hiding her or lying, while others simply blamed her for being a bad mother altogether. On October 29th, Jacqueline Humphrey, Samantha's mother, spoke out, quote, I want Samantha to know that everybody is very scared, and she is very loved, and that we only want her to come home with us as soon as possible. And so if she's out there for any reason, doing her Sam thing, and like seeing this or seeing anything else on the news, that hopefully she knows how much of an impact it's having on me and the rest of her family and her friends and the parents of all of her friends, end quote. She told CBS 6, a local news station. Of course, many people also expressed concern about Sam's boyfriend, but because he too was a minor, very little information was released about his involvement. According to Sam's mother, it was revealed that the boy and Sam had gotten into a fight that evening on November 25th. The boy was said to have received a defensive bite wound on his arm from Sam in the process. In January, it was reported that Samantha's jacket was combed for DNA. The results determined that three sets of DNA were found on the coat, one belonging to Sam, one to a convicted adult male felon, and one to an unidentified male. Though there was an initial feeling of hope, it seemingly vanished, after the subject was never revisited by police or news outlets over subsequent weeks. Months passed as officers and volunteers searched the Mohawk River. Winter in upstate New York can be bitter, and the search was greatly impeded by inclement weather. On February 2, 2023, a new development finally unfolded. A body was seen floating along the river roughly 15 miles from where she was last seen. But it wasn't Sam. On February 22nd, reports trickled in that another body was uncovered in the Mohawk River, close to its bank. This time, the air felt different. The body had not been found by the police, but a fisherman who accidentally discovered it. Rumors swirled on Facebook where much of the conversation surrounding Sam's disappearance had taken place over the past few months. And on February 27th, police confirmed that Samantha Humphrey had indeed been found dead. Early reports indicated that she had been found tied to a shopping cart, while others stated it was only located near her. On May 23, 2023, the Schenectady County District Attorney revealed the results of Sam's autopsy report. Inconclusive. The medical examiner stated that not enough medical evidence existed to support a cause of death. Since the report, nothing has been released regarding Sam's untimely death. Considering the circumstances of her disappearance, many feel that there is more to the story. So... What happened to her on the night of November 25th?
and that, dear listeners, brings a close to these True Unsolved Mysteries, Volume 7. If you are sleeping, I hope Slumberland is treating you kindly. If you are awake, I hope you've enjoyed this collection. Until next time, I'll read to you soon. Have yourself a good morning, a good afternoon, or a good night. <laughs>